0: Amen. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is where we will be this morning. I'll say one thing about the announcement video on 9-6, that's a Wednesday, um, will be our community group meeting. You saw that on the, on the video. That is not just for people who are currently in community groups. It is for you if you're currently in a community group. But it's for everyone in general who's interested in community groups. So that night we'll worship together, we'll pray together. I'll teach from Acts chapter 2 on how we think about community here at the church. And then we will uh, make it clear on what community groups, how they function in our church, what they are, and how you can be a part of one. So we would invite you to be here. I know we have a lot of visitors who've been coming over the last couple months We would highly encourage you to be here. This is one of the most tangible ways to get connected in our church and really get into the life of how we want to live together as a church. So please come to that meeting, 9-6, put that on your calendar, 6 p.m. here at the church. Now certain words and vocabulary require, demand a religious explanation. Words like grace and mercy and repentance and godly or godliness They can't truly be understood apart from a religious explanation or religious context. Yet that doesn't stop these words from being used broadly. We might say uh, misused or or used wrongly all, all the time. And they're used without any religious thought or explanation behind them. For instance, godly is commonly just used in reference to a person refusing to do something wrong or immoral. Repentance as just saying I'm sorry. Grace as just being nice. But technically speaking, to use those words uh, in merely that way is a distortion of those words themselves. They are, in a sense, religious words, if you'll let me use that category, requiring a religious explanation in their meaning. Now, my point this morning is not to suggest we need language police or something. We're all aware how common usage, or in a sense, incorrect usage of a word, does affect the meaning of the word. But all of this begs the question for us as Christians, as religious people, regarding our usage of the language that in fact defines our faith. Do we truly understand the terms we use to describe our faith? Are we using the language that we've been given from the Bible accurately? I begin this way because our text this morning is centered on what we could say is one of the most religious terms often used in our culture. And it's an inherently biblical word found all throughout the Old and the New Testament and a word that comes often off of the lips of the Lord Jesus Himself. It's the word blessed or to be blessed. It's a word that speaks of happiness or receiving favor. So, what does it mean to be blessed? What is the blessed life, as the psalmist is alluding to here? For fun, I searched hashtag blessed on Instagram this week. You'll know that's funny if you know me because I don't even deal with Instagram, so I had to figure out what all that, how I got there. I discovered 145 million results. Almost every post included. Selfies of people at fun places, working out together, enjoying good food, most of all just time of relaxation and people having fun in fun places. If I could summarize it, I might say it would be something like, check out my great life, hashtag blessed or blessed life. Is that what we are to infer the blessed life includes? Now, while it's true, God does shower His people with tangible blessings of all kinds. We shouldn't be afraid of that in the Bible. The question is, is that what truly the word blessing or to be blessed really means? What happens, therefore, when you lose your job? When the doctor calls with bad news, when the loved one passes away, do we then have hashtag curse life? Psalm 84 this morning, the psalmist refers to the blessed life or blessing. He's going to do it three times. He's going to do it in verse 4. He's going to do it in verse 5. He's going to do it in verse 12. Really holding the whole psalm together. And yet not a single mention of a material blessing is found in this text. Not one. What is mentioned, what is repeatedly emphasized on every line of this psalm is a deep and abiding desire for God. If someone asks you today, are you blessed, what might you say? How would you describe what it means to be blessed? Well, I think Psalm 84 helps us, and here's what I think it shows us. It shows us that the blessed life is one marked by a hunger for God, leading to reliance and trust in Jesus. That the blessed life is a, is a, life, is a, is, is a life, a one that's uh, it's marked by a hunger for God, leading to reliance and trust in Jesus. Let me read this fantastic psalm to you, Psalm 84. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do put your eyes on verse 1. Psalm says by the Holy Spirit, How lovely is Your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of Your anointed. For a day in Your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God Then dwell in the tents of of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. Father, in this next few moments, help myself, help each one of us in this room To get out of the way of the text. That we might hear. By you Holy Spirit. Your intended meaning in it. That we might walk in this life of blessedness. As you've laid out before us. Holy Spirit. Show us Jesus. And the loveliness of his person. In every way. In his name we pray. Amen. There's much about this psalm we don't know. For one, we don't know the specific context of this psalm. We can assume, and I think it's a safe assumption, that this is before the exile due to the language of king or anointed, but beyond that we're really left to speculate the exact context of what's going on. It's also difficult to distinguish the psalm's genre. We talked about that a few weeks ago, about the different genres throughout the psalms. This psalm has elements of lament in it. It has elements of a royal psalm, of even a, a kingship song. And Furthermore, we don't really know the author. All we have is that it was a song of the sons of Korah, it says. However, with all of that stated we're not left guessing as to what Psalm 84 is doing. Psalm 84 points us to God. Every word of this psalm reflects the, the, the author's overwhelming singular desire for his God. Psalm 84 is God's Word, for sure. Just as a, a plant grows and stretches upward towards the sun, the psalmist here is longing, he's reaching, he's moving forward for his God. And Beloved, if we're going to Obtain the hashtag blessed life, so must each of us in this room. The structuring of Psalm 84, we could look at it multiple ways. I'm just going to slice it up three ways, kind of simplistically. I'm going to divide it up into verses 1 to 4. We're going to look at the presence of God, 5 to 6, the strength of God, 10 to 12, the superiority of God. So let's consider first. The presence of God. So the blessed life, first, I think, hung, is, is a life that hungers for the presence of God. This whole psalm is, especially the first four verses, is 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 wrapped in unique language, language of, of longing, of language of intense desire. And the opening line is really it serves as the keynote verse for Psalm eighty-four. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, for the Israelite. There was no place more important or lovely than the temple because God's presence dwelt there. Now, the author, of course, understood that God's presence wasn't confined to the temple. He opened and he actually does it four times in this psalm. He describes God as uh, the God of hosts or the one over all heaven and earth, but The psalmist is aware that God's presence was especially assigned to the temple. And because of this, he longs for the house of the Lord. And in verse 2, this longing builds in climactic fashion, we might say. It says, first look at it, the text says, His soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, and then his whole being, my translation has, has hardened flesh. They sing out or they cry to God. So in the strongest and realest sense of the word, we have a a hunger here. A hunger for the very presence of God. In verse 3, he even envies the birds that make their home in the beams of the temple. Because of their constant closeness, look what he says, to my God and my King. What we find here is, I think, a man driven by an intense desire to be with his God. To be in the presence of his God. And we see an appetite for God, a hunger for the very presence of God. And as we're going to see, we'll talk about a little bit further down in verse 5. The psalmist is most likely away from Jerusalem, away from God's presence. As he's writing and reflecting, he's most likely homesick. And that's the point of Psalm 84. He longs, he hungers to be back in Jerusalem, back in the temple, back in the midst of God's presence with God's people. He's homesick. And he's hungry for God. I wonder why you were even here this morning. Why am I even here this morning? Probably a question we don't reflect on enough. We're here because we feel it's our Christian duty to be here. Maybe you're here because a friend invited you here. You didn't want to let them down and say no. Maybe you're here because your parents are here. You don't really have much of an option. What is your motivation for attending a worship service on a Sunday morning? I mean, week one of the NFL is just a few days away. It may be an important question you need to think through. But do you come to church to get something from God? Or are you here for God. That has a big difference. Are we attempting to live the Christian life so that God will reward us somehow? Or are we living the Christian life because we want God Himself? Because we desire Him. Because we hunger to know Him. To experience His presence in our lives. This distinction really does get at the heart of the word blessed in the Bible. As I said, it it, it kind of forms the, if you let me use the image, the backbone of Psalm 84. It's in verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, strategically placed. Beloved, God does have a desire to bless you. God has a desire to bless you abundantly. But this really does have nothing to do with health or wealth or material blessing. Notice the psalmist does not ask anywhere in this psalm for anything temporal or material. Not a single thing. All the psalmist wishes is to share, to dwell. Those are the words he uses. In the Lord's reign and in His presence. For He is my God, my King. That's what he says. Not a God, not a King. My God, my King. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Why are they blessed? Because they're in the presence of God. That's what true prosperity is. The blessed life in the Bible has nothing to do with material blessing. It has everything to do with the presence, with the intimacy, with the security of God in our lives. But we do probably need to consider again that we all tend to live with a tendency for our Christian life to be motivated by the idea that if I serve God, He will do something for me in return. Maybe it's not material blessing. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it is a new job. Maybe it's a life situation. Maybe it's if I serve God rightly, He will in fact help me lead my family correctly, which there is a truth to that. But if our motivation for doing it is just that, we've missed it. To be sure, living for God carries with it many, many benefits in life and the family. But the problem comes when the motivation for living the Christian life is that we're going to get something in return for that. We find no such motivation in this psalm. The psalmist's motivation is to live for the psalmist's motivation to live for God is God. That's enough for him. He wants, he desires, yes, he hungers for God. The psalm presses upon us. Do we? The blessed life begins, is marked by a hunger for God, to experience Him, to walk with Him, and to grow in our relationship with Him. Secondly, the blessed life relies upon the strength of God. In verses 5 to 7, they kind of further unpack this idea of hungering for God through the imagery of a pilgrimage. It's important that many of the Psalms, the Bible, and many of our favorite, most helpful Christian books are set within the narrative of a pilgrimage. For many Israelites living outside of Jerusalem, they didn't have daily access to the temple. They couldn't just call Uber and get a, get a ride into Jerusalem. Their, their experience uh, into Jerusalem typically involved at least yearly, if not regularly, a journey or a pilgrimage into the city. Christian Our Christian life is a pilgrimage and we should remember that. As Bunyan famously said, we must walk through the wilderness of this world. And where are we to find our strength as we journey through the wilderness of this world? What we rely upon as we make this spiritual journey. Verse 5, we see the blessing of those whose strength is found in the Lord. Those whose strengths are the highways, he says, are set on pilgrimage. Zion this reliance on God's strength is vital for we all must pass through the land of Baca verse 6 says the land of Baca there's speculation as to exactly where this land is and what it was but it definitely is a dry wilderness a land of weeping and mourning a land that many were known to go into and not come out the other side so the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it was no easy journey. You had many of reasons to say, no, I'm good, I'll stay where I'm at. You had to pass through this dangerous, dry wilderness. But notice for those whose hearts are set on God, in other words, those who hunger for His presence, this dry land becomes what the text says? A place of springs with pools of water. A beautiful imagery there. Because of this, this pilgrim goes, it says, from strength to strength, verse 7. Literally, his strength gains strength. How? Because his heart is fixed on the right place, his heart is fixed on his final destination. It says, because each one appears before God in Zion. That's his hope, that's his destination, that's his desire to be before the Lord. That's his aim, his goal, to appear before God. In other words, we rely upon the strength of God found in the assurance of the presence of God. It's his heart desires for. it. Heart is really central here in the text. and uh, Christian, this world is constantly telling you to follow your own heart. Adults, I'm not leaving you off when I say this, but young people, you decide if that's you or not. That idea to follow your heart is presented to you as a morally superior idea. You're told your heart... uh, You're told that your heart is to direct you. And you're told that directly, but you're told that indirectly in a million different ways. That the most virtuous, brave thing you can do today is follow your own heart. To not follow your heart is to wimp out. To not follow your own heart is actually immoral the way it's presented. Be true to yourself. Do you. Listen to your own heart. Be honest with your own heart. Psalm 84 and the rest of the Bible has zero patience for that type of nonsense. You want to ensure you end up miserable, self-absorbed, joyless, then yes, follow your own heart. Take off. That's not to say that you won't find some immediate pleasure in the pursuit of your heart. But joy, lasting joy. A real purpose Abiding meaning and true satisfaction will not be found by an inner resolve to follow me, but one that says, follow God. We must pursue Him at all costs. That's what the psalmist is saying. For He is God. He's the one who made us. He's the one who knows us. And He's the one who cares most intimately for us. As one author says, quote, happy off this text, quote, happy is the heart that isn't a cul-de-sac of self-regard. I must discover myself, express myself, be true to myself, but rather that contains highways leading out of that congested city in pursuit of God and in service to others. This is where true strength and true reliance is found in a heart fixed on God. You know, the lies of our, our culture are appealing because they're often so very close to the truth. Happiness, blessedness does require you to rely on something. But not on yourself. Reliance on God. Strength emerges from our longing for His presence. This combination of strength and longing for the presence of God is found in one of my favorite characters of Narnia, Riphacheep. Riphacheep is somewhat of a ridiculous character in the series. Okay, he's a tiny mouse with an even tinier sword who's quick to draw it and go to battle against anyone no matter the size of anyone who stands before him. No matter how big they are, no matter how looming his enemies are, Reepa is never scared to pull out his toothpick sword and throw down. But what's clear regarding Reepa strength, which we might say is, seems to be very foolish and ridiculous, is that it comes by way of his desire, his insatiable, insatiable pursuit to be with Aslan. Aslan. The lion who represents Christ in the story. Repacheep's longing to be with the lion provides him great strength and security every time we see him. As the voyage of the dawn treader comes to a close, they've traveled eastward, headed towards Narnia, toward the presence of Aslan. Things aren't looking promising and Repacheep says this, quote, My own plans are made. While I can, I, shall, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east with my little boat. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast waterfall, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise towards Narnia. Repacheeps, his his final destination, the presence to be with the lion is what consumed him. His hunger to be in the presence of the lion provided him a great source of strength. Psalm 105.4 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. We must not forget, Christians, that we too are pilgrims in this world passing through this land. And as we wander through the wilderness, through the land of Baca, through difficulties and trials and hardships, we must do so with the great promise of Revelation 22 ever before us that we will see his face, his very presence and his name shall be stamped to our foreheads, meaning we will be his. We must always rely upon the strength of Christ found in the presence of God, which comes to us in Jesus. Story goes, you've probably heard me say before, I love it. It's a story of a young pastor who went to visit this senior saint dying in the hospital. And he was going to encourage her and he opened up his Bible to the end of Matthew chapter 28 And he read, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he said to her, Isn't this a wonderful promise? To which she looked at the young pastor and rightly replied, This is more than just a great promise, young man. This is a fact. And she was right. As believers in Jesus Christ, not only do we have the promise of God's future presence with us in heaven, We have God's, the fact of God's perpetual presence with us now through the Holy Spirit. Meaning, if you're a believer this morning, there is no land of Baca. There is no place, no trial, no tribulation, no situation in your life to which you go through where God's presence is not there to provide you strength. And furthermore, I'm leaving out much in this psalm about the corporate nature of the church it's going to be hard to do it all but as believers each possessing the spirit of God we are able to bring the very presence of God to one another as the body of Christ we're able to reach in into someone's valley of Baca and bring the strength of God to them through the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit abiding in us and give our brothers and sisters strength is this where you find your strength this morning Is just the resource from which you're drawing. And see, the blessed life is a life which relies upon the strength of God made available to us through the abiding presence of Jesus. So there's a hunger for the presence of God, a reliance upon the strength of God, but there's also the blessed life. I struggled with how to even phrase this one. The blessed life bask in the superiority of God. In this final stanza, the psalmist he takes us back to the temple, interestingly, where we began to magnify the superiority of God's presence. Again, a a pilgrim could only spend a few days a year in the temple compared to a hundred he would spend elsewhere. And he exclaims in verse 10, just one of those days is better than a thousand elsewhere. He says, in fact, he would rather assume the lowly position of a doorkeeper, of the janitor of the temple, than dwell in the presence of the wicked. Why is this? Because his God is there. That's why. But it's important he takes us back to the temple, but he does so through the absence of temple language in the last two verses. The closing of this psalm is about God. The Lord God is our sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then he concludes by announcing this final blessing statement. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. His God is to be trusted. Because he's saying his God is supreme. He would rather be there in the house of the Lord than anywhere else. Because his God is there. Donald Whitney commenting on this final section here. Ask a few questions that are helpful. He says, suppose God let you choose anywhere in the world to serve. And, and anyone in the world to serve and know intimately. But wouldn't let you serve him. Suppose he allowed you to serve in any political or business position in the world, but barred you from serving in his kingdom. Or suppose he permitted you to serve yourself, doing anything you wanted with your life and with no needs or worries. You've been there in your mind. But that reality, you could not know Jesus. Even the best of these things becomes a miserable slavery in comparison with the immeasurable privilege of serving God. That's why the psalmist could say, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There's nothing more superior than the presence of God. That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to see here. And this presence comes to us in Christ and Christ alone. It is Him we joyfully serve. Jesus is the point of Psalm 84. The presence of God found in the person of God must define us. We must never get over the fact that because of Jesus, we know the living God and have access to His presence. I think Paul, reflecting on, or at least demonstrating a same sort of posture as Psalm 84 in Philippians 3, says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss. He's making the comparison like the psalmist did here. I'd rather be there than anywhere else. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What is that? The presence of God. He says, for his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why, Paul? In order that I may gain Christ in the very presence of God and be found in him. So here's what's at the heart of this psalm. Jesus is at the heart of this psalm. To bask in the superiority of God to the presence of Jesus. And you say, where is that at? Look at verses 8 and 9. I skipped over it. Because it, it serves somewhat of a parenthetical heart to this psalm. And yet, verses 8 and 9 stand alone and function like a bridge before and what's after. In these two verses, we find the only partition or request in the psalm. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Here's his petition. He says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your Anointed. Literally, look on the face of the king. Show favor to the king is what he's saying. That seems odd right here in the middle of this psalm. Why insert this prayer in the middle of a psalm focusing on the presence of God? Because the psalmist knew that the king of God was tied up with the nation of God. And the nation of God was tied up with the temple of God. And the temple of God was tied up with the presence of God. So simply put, as went the king, went the presence of the living God. Therefore he prays for God's blessing to remain upon the king. Therefore that God's, the blessing of God's presence would remain with his people. So it is for us, brothers and sisters. We serve King Jesus, the anointed one. And He has secured our access to God's presence permanently. He is the holy and righteous God. Due to our sin, we are separated from His presence. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Of the glory of God, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. The wages we've earned, the wages we've deserved for our sin, is spiritual death. Eternal separation from the very presence of God in a place called hell. What is hell? Complete isolation from the person of God. That's what it is. Misery. Away from the one you were purposed to live for. And God would be perfectly just. Absolutely right to leave us there. In our sin. To spend eternity separated from Him. He has no obligation to do to you or to me or to anyone in this room otherwise. Otherwise. And yet, he has done something different. The gospel's good news, in an unbelievable act of love, he sent his one and only son, his divine son, to earth. And instead of merely guarding the presence of God in the temple, like the king in the Old Testament, Jesus brings us God's very presence. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is the true temple. A thousand years after Psalm 84 was written, Jesus stood in Jerusalem and had the audacity to say, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Raise it up. It's the right way. Raise it up. The Jewish leaders mocked him. It took nearly 50 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? Jesus said, absolutely right. He was not referring to a brick or mortar building of any physical structure, but to his own body. Who would be destroyed on the cross for sinners, but raised to new life. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived, never sinning. And yet He took the penalty for us by dying on the cross, in our place for our sins. By way of the cross, Jesus passed through the valley of Baca for us. He received the full penalty for our sins, dying in our place. And three days later He rose from the grave demonstrating both His power over sin, His ability to save all who trust and repent in Him. Jesus has secured our eternal access into God's presence by His life, death, and resurrection. So do you know this presence of God in your life found only in Jesus? What is the blessed life? What does Hashtag bless truly mean. Well, I want to turn our eyes just briefly, at least to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said it this way. Verses 3 to 6, at least I'll read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As Martin Lloyd-Jones most wonderfully said, this is not; these verses are not meant for an exclusive group of especially godly Christians. These verses are meant for Christians. All of us. Blessing is assigned by Jesus to those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, and who are meek. In other words, it comes to those who possess a right understanding of themselves. We are sinners, poor and needy. We mourn over the decay of this world, yes, but of the disposition of our own souls. We're meek, we're humble, we're lowly, we're submissive. And the right understanding of ourselves produces a deep desire for the right thing, for God. Or as Jesus says, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Righteous One. A blessed person is a dependent person. A person who knows that their ultimate need and their true satisfaction cannot be found in themselves or the things of this world. A blessed person knows they need God. And a blessed person knows that everything we need is found in the Righteous One, Jesus. For in Him we are truly satisfied. So are you blessed? do you have Jesus? The righteous one? If so, you can line up all the billionaires and recognize and make clear they are simply poor beggars in comparison to you if you have Jesus. Or maybe we could say it from maybe more directly from Psalm 84 and ask this question. Are you blessed? We we'll ask it this way. Is Jesus lovely to you? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Where is God's dwelling place in his son? Is that that's the heart cry of the blessed life? The loveliness the assurance, the trust, the reliance upon Jesus, the very dwelling place of God's glory. The blessed life is a life in pursuit of God through the presence of Jesus. It's reliance, it's trust in the person and work of His Son. Do you know Him? Let's pray. God, how very clear and yet convicting Psalm 84 is to us. Instead of stating I would rather be in your house than 10,000 other places be with you than 10,000 other places often it's I can at least think of 10,000 other places I would rather be than with you. God, forgive us. It is a clear sign of our need of salvation. It is a clear sign of our need of your ongoing work through the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, help us to see just how lovely you are, just how wonderful the Lord Jesus is to us. God, help us to understand. The truth that all we need, all we should truly desire, all that will bring us real satisfaction is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And God, let us be those who don't just say, but can know in the inner recesses of of our heart and walk out the statement of the psalmist, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And God, I I pray for those in the room who don't know You, who are trying to maybe walk a line and wear a mask and present themselves as a Christian by doing certain things and playing a game with You, Lord. I pray You would convict them right now of that. Break them of that reality. Show them their sin before You, a holy God. But show them the loveliness of Your Son. Cause them to cry out in repentance and faith and receive the implanted, beautiful Word of Christ today. And God, for me, for us, as Christians, help us retrain our hearts Help us to be honest, confess where we've allowed lesser desires to grab hold of our hearts, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that it is those who seek after You that will be satisfied. We thank You, Lord, ultimately that we know our salvation is secured in Christ. And therefore we should walk in Him freely and truly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.